Yula, thank you so much for joining us today on the Commonweal podcast. And uh, we're here to discuss your book, Notes from No Man's Land, which was recently reissued by Grey Wolf Press in a special 10th anniversary edition. And I thought we could start just by discussing the essay you wrote on the book, which was recently published on the website Literary Hub, in which you describe it as a book that you can't defend, but also that you can't renounce. And uh, you mentioned the, the strange experience of trying to find your book in a bookstore when it first came out exactly 10 years ago during the first month of the Obama presidency. And I, I was wondering if you, would, if you could tell our listeners that anecdote again. What happened when you searched for your book in the bookstore? Sure. So this was February 2009. My book was just out. And I think that I had probably already received the author copies from the publisher. It was probably 10 author copies. And I may have already given all 10 of them away. That might have been why I was headed to the bookstore to look for my own book. But I also think I was excited to see my own book in a bookstore. That's That could be also what was going on. But I went to a bookstore that's no longer in business. I was It was Borders Books in Evanston. And oh, I remember Borders. <laughs> yeah, remember the remember those days, the days of Borders. My cousin used to work. Yeah, my cousin used to work at Borders. <laughs> so I went to Borders, and uh, partly because it was the closest bookstore, and I was in a hurry, and I checked what I thought would be the most likely places for the book. I looked at their table of new nonfiction, and my book wasn't there. And then I looked on the shelves where they shelved essays, and it wasn't there. And then I looked under autobiography. There's a few different places my work can end up because I cross genre. Um, so after I checked all the places where I thought it might be shelved, I went to the an employee of the bookstore and I asked her for some help in finding it. And she looked the book up in her computer and told me that it was in African-American history. And she led me over to the shelf. And as I pulled the book off the shelf, I had a, the feeling that that it would be a disservice to someone looking for African-American history to pick up this particular book. And I had a kind of queasy feeling about it. And so I told the employee, I said, you know, I think this book is misshelved. It's, it's really about whiteness. And she said, well, we don't have a category for that. And the reason I told that story in that essay is I think that was that's to me emblematic of the moment in which the book was first published. Whiteness was not for most people a legible category at that time. I, I guess for most white people, I should specify that. It was not a mainstream conversation for people who are white to recognize that whiteness had significance or was something worth mm -hmm. thinking about or questioning or exploring. So can you talk a bit about what you mean by whiteness, how you came to want to write a book about it, a series of essays about it, and why you think it's important today that we talk about it? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I do, I continue to struggle with what exactly whiteness means. But I think for me, when I talk about whiteness, I'm talking about the historical situation that we, that I occupy. You know, people talk about whiteness being an identity category, and I don't, I don't think of it so much as the thing I identify with or identify as so much as the historical situation that I was born into. 
and that I must now reckon with in my adult life. It's a historical situation in which I am in in the role of of an oppressor, and um, right. right, and where I I reap the benefits of an oppressive system, whether I deny or acknowledge my own whiteness, I will reap those benefits, and that's what makes it, I think, particularly seductive for people to ignore or deny their own whiteness is that you can entirely ignore or deny it and still reap all the benefits. Mm-hmm. So whether exactly, so for you, whiteness is not so much, I look at myself in the mirror and I see that my skin color is white. It's a set of relations. Yes. And I can deny those relations if I want, but I'm still going to benefit from them. That's what whiteness is. It's a set of circumstances, or as you're saying, a, a situation that you find yourself in. Yes. And, you know, if I look back on many of the major events of my adult life or the the major advantages that I've had in, in my adult life and, you know, starting actually in my late teens, my, my entrance into college, the fact that I had my college education paid for a series of jobs that I got in my 20s, um, my entrance into graduate school, um, my hiring at, a, at an elite university. So I'm, I'm giving you a short history of my adult life. Pretty much every one of those pivotal points, I've good reason to believe that my whiteness gave me some advantage. And so, I mean, I hope this this might be too personal of a question, but is this something you feel guilty about or that you feel ashamed of? How have you learned to, I guess, let's say, metabolize this condition of whiteness where you're, you're well aware of all the advantages you've enjoyed, the, even the, the kind of biography that's possible for you as a white person. How do you, I guess, what's the word? How do you make sense of this? Or how do you, how do you exist and go on doing good anyway? That's a ongoing conversation for me and an ongoing struggle. I don't tend to feel shame. I do feel a certain kind of guilt, but I, I wrote a piece about this that, uh, that ran in the New York Times Magazine that was called, I think they typed something like white debt. And part of the project of that essay was to try to explain exactly what kind of guilt I feel. And it's the kind of guilt that could be could be interchangeable with the word debt in that I feel indebted to the people who have been less well served by the system that has served me well. And it's a sense of, I feel, a deep responsibility to make efforts towards squaring the debt. And what exactly that means is pretty difficult to figure out in some situations. And in other situations, it's crystal clear. It's, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's certain interactions in my daily life where what it would mean to square the debt seems foggy. And other situations where for example, when I'm participating in admissions in the writing program where I work, there's a clear opportunity to, to not to perpetuate a system where people who are white have undue advantage in higher education. That's just one tiny example. But I think that there's, you know, there's many opportunities 
to chip away at this system. And, and I really do feel like it's just a chipping away, right? It's, it's not an undoing. But I guess I'm trying to get a little closer to the emotional state. For me, it feels like a necessary act also of personal liberation, this effort to respond to the debt, or at least even acknowledge the debt. I really do believe that this system of racial oppression is damaging to white people as well as to others. And and actually, you know, on a, on a spiritual level, I think it, it's profoundly damaging. It's damaging to one's humanity, one's ability to be a full person. And so that's kind of what, that's what feels at stake to me. And so I feel like in a sense, talking about this, working with it, you know, muddling through trying to make some sort of action, which is really, you know, that's as close as I ever get is, you know, a kind of muddle towards action. But that feels like uh, an effort to save my own soul, essentially. And I'm sure there's people who bring more precision to this, um, you know, and that's part of why I admire James Baldwin's writing so much. He's, he's wonderfully, forcefully precise. But yeah, I don't feel like precision is what I can bring to these efforts. It's I, I can bring some passion to it, but not precision. <laughs> and that's one thing that strikes me about your writing is that it is so impassioned. You have this way of writing that makes, I mean, it really makes the reader, or at least it makes me feel like I'm there with you in Notes from No Man's Land. So it's, I just want to say two words about how it's set up. I think it was, it was a collection that it didn't start off as a collection, right? It became one. Yeah, and it, it has this almost like Augustinian geography to it, where you start off in New York City in your 20s, and you continue on to San Diego, and then you end up in the Midwest. So we we kind of get to mature alongside with you as we read you, which is really interesting. But also, I'm just so struck by not only how passionate the book itself is. I mean, I read it twice and I remember it's interesting. I was trying to convince a group of Jesuits in Washington to go and read it back when it came out in November, the re-released edition. And I went to an African-American bookstore and couldn't find it there. And I, th- I thought that was interesting. But I want to ask, your language is so precise and you've got maybe if your method, you know, for chipping away at whiteness is a bit of an imprecise activity your writing is super precise, the way that you you explore the connotations of words, the ways that words uh, reveal and mask different things. Could you say a bit about your writing at the level of vocabulary? What is it that fascinates you about language? Yeah, so I think in trying to challenge myself towards precision in language, that's my way of trying to achieve clarity of thought or to heighten the clarity of my thought. And for example, when I first began writing the essays that became Notes from No Man's Land, I was writing them one by one as as they came to me. I wasn't, I didn't have the vision of writing a book that came later, but I had about two thirds of the essays in that collection before I realized that this could be a book and was going to be a book. 
But at that point, and, and that was the point where I realized what the book was about, too. So I'd been writing essays about racial identity and whiteness for many years before I realized, oh, this this is a book about racial identity and whiteness. And one of the things I did at that point, once I realized what I was writing about and what uh, once I realized the dimensions of the project, one of the rules that I made for myself at that point was that I could not use the word racism. And the reason I made that rule was that I, I was observing myself to use that word in fairly imprecise ways. It seemed to be a stand-in for a whole range of things, sometimes bigotry, sometimes prejudice, sometimes something take me, you know, three paragraphs to to truly explain or describe. And that's what I ended up having to do. So there's many, many places in that book where I initially reached for the word racism and then took the word away from myself. And what resulted was a page or more of me trying to describe exactly what it was I was saying. And for me, that was a very kind of private, personal exercise. It was my way of coming to greater clarity about what that word really meant and how it manifested in my daily life. And when I wanted to use it, I would ask myself, okay, I want to reach for this word racism, but what do I really mean by it in this situation? And what does it mean in this context? And as a result, the word racism rarely appears in that book. It's a book about racism. And I think that the word appears twice and once inside a quote. So (laughs) uh, So it's not even you. Yeah. But so that's one situation where it was actually the, the word was seeming baggy and overused and overapplied to me. So I actually avoided the word because I wanted it felt so important to get at the exact meaning that, that word was standing in for mm-hmm. that I avoided the word altogether. Interesting. So it's, I'm even thinking as you're speaking, the ways that words can contain entire narratives. Like you mentioned the use of the word nice in one of your essays. What does it mean to be a nice girl? What does it mean to describe a neighborhood as nice? And this describes an entire category of narratives mm-hmm. about race. Yeah. But can you think of any? Yeah. Well, can you think of that. any? Sp- oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, 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 please, please. Well, I was just going to say, uh, up until I began thinking about that word nice, it went entirely undetected by me. It was a neutral word. and But once I had done the reading and thinking that that led me to an awareness of the racial code behind that word... I started hearing and seeing that racial code everywhere. And, you know, to this day, I can't hear the word nice without noting it as racial code. And then also you you think about the word, one of the words that struck me most uh, was the word pioneer. What does it mean to be a pioneer in a neighborhood? And you've got this beautiful essay, No Man's Land, it's called. And you're describing your neighborhood in Chicago called Rogers Park and your interactions with your neighbors, and the ways that some of the white neighbors uh, refer to themselves as pioneers. A bit about gentrification, which is certainly something that I witness and experience every day in New York City. But I'm wondering if you could speak a bit more about that, a bit more about the, the narratives that words contain and reveal, but also hide. 
any any specific situations jump to mind for you? Sure. That essay is a great example in that that entire essay was born of that single word, pioneer. Mm. And it's a word that, of course, I'd heard before in my life. It was a word I was familiar with, but it took on a new charge in this neighborhood. And every time I heard a white person in my neighborhood refer to themselves as a pioneer, I knew there was something deeply wrong with that that designation and that way of imagining oneself in the neighborhood space. But again, this was the essay was a project towards a precise understanding of what exactly was wrong there. On a kind of intuitive level, I knew, oh, that's wrong. But then the essay helped me think through the dimensions of how exactly and why it's wrong. And you know, I started that essay, it began with the word, but one of the first things I did was ask myself, what does this word mean to me? What connotations does it have for me? And I had loved very much Laura Ingalls Wilder as a child and Little House in the Prairie books. And that was the very first thing that was called to mind for me. And It was distressing and disturbing to me to have Laura Ingalls Wilder mixed up in the racial politics of my neighborhood. Her books had been so important to me as a young reader, but I decided that I would return to the books and I would do what I anticipated being the kind of awful work of looking at them again as an adult. And I fully expected to to have the books change for me, to return to them as an adult and knowing what I knew as an adult to be no longer able to admire Laura Ingalls Wilder and no longer able to treasure these books. And some of that happened. Those books aren't perfect, but I was actually quite surprised when I returned to Little House on the Prairie by how much evidence there was that Laura Ingalls Wilder was thinking about race and thinking about the racial politics of what was happening on the prairie in that moment and thinking about the damage that was being done by the pioneers of that moment. So there is, there's more work that could have been done there, but the book is not entirely lacking in introspection or or kind of subtle analysis around the tragedy of the American West. And part of that is because Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote that, I think nearly 60 years after the events in her life that it's about. And she went back and did quite a bit of research in order to write that book. And she had to learn quite a bit about the Native Americans in that area. And All of that learning is fairly subtly rendered in the book. It certainly centers and foregrounds the white characters, but there's an ongoing, there's an ongoing critique. And this critique is uh, delivered in a way that makes some people so uncomfortable with the book that they don't want it taught in schools and they don't want it available in libraries. And that's because there's a refrain throughout the book, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. But if you track the way that refrain appears, the entire plot of the book is designed to be a critique of that statement. So that's probably too sophisticated for your average seven-year-old to really absorb. (laughs) 
But so the, that was one of the great surprises of that essay was for me to discover that even the, the people who I thought of as the original pioneers were fairly uncomfortable with what had been done in the name of the pioneer. Yeah, and they were certainly aware of the violence that they were causing. Yes, absolutely. And then what's so beautiful in the essay is how you juxtapose that literary analysis of Laura Ingalls Wilder with your own experience of living or moving into a neighborhood in Chicago. Can you say a bit about that neighborhood and the the kinds of attitudes that you discovered there and, and the ways that it changed you living there? Yeah, so this this neighborhood is Rogers Park. It's the furthest northeast neighborhood in Chicago. And and Chicago is known as a segregated city and and even a hyper segregated city, meaning that most neighborhoods have a vast majority like around 80 or 90% of one racial group. Mm. But that's what was unusual about Rogers Park is that it it's it has no racial majority. It's a an unusually integrate racially integrated neighborhood for Chicago. Mm. And the area that I lived in was mostly African American. Um, there are other areas of Rogers Park that are dominated by um, Indian and Pakistani immigrants. There are other neighborhoods that are largely Latino. Mexican immigrants. Um, so it's, there's, there's neighborhoods within the neighborhood, but the area where I lived was, was mostly African-American with the exception of a very thin sliver of the neighborhood right along the lake shore. And this is where it was, the neighborhood was much more mixed and there was a lot more white folks living right on this, the road that I lived on, which was right up against the, the shore of Lake Michigan and so the experience of living there was in some ways like the experience that I'd had in other neighborhoods where I lived in other cities where I was having daily interactions with people who of different races than myself. But I don't think that I had yet lived in a neighborhood where the tensions associated with gentrification were so so apparent to me and so so frequently flared up in ways that I could see and understand. I'm sure I lived in other, you know, soon to be gentrifying or almost gentrifying neighborhoods before, but this was a neighborhood in a, in the very active process of gentrification and, and the white people that I interacted with had disturbing attitudes. As we've discussed, they compared themselves to pioneers also, you know, clearly afraid of their own neighbors. So almost all the white folks in my neighborhood had really large dogs. And that I came to understand that not as a love of animals, but as a fear of one's neighbors. And, and there was disturbing sense of we're staking our claim, uh, essentially. So I lived right on a park uh, with a beach. And after the 4th of July, the 4th of July was a holiday where people from all over the neighborhood would show up. And it was really a, a totally beautiful scene at this in this park. There would be Pakistani families having picnics and Mexican families setting off fireworks and African-American families barbecuing and white folks 
taking their kayaks out on the lake. And, um, (laughs) but there was a real, under that, there was a real vibration of competition over turf. And I, that was one of the times during the year when I would very frequently hear nasty remarks about either the the Mexicans or the African-Americans. And I would also hear my white neighbors considered the park theirs. And so there were a lot of comments about, oh, these people come in and they throw trash everywhere and they ruin our park. And so it was not at all, you know, it might have looked utopian on its surface, but there was not a utopian attitude among my white neighbors. And so that's part of what I was thinking through in that essay is the, the kind of the turf war that was going on there and that was in many ways reminiscent of the, you know, the taking of the American West. It's not that you don't judge, but that your writing is very non-judgmental. You don't editorialize. In a sense, you trust your reader and allow the reader to draw their own conclusions based on what you've presented. So one thing I love about your essays, the, the, the forms that you choose, I note this, this strategy of juxtaposition or apposition of different narratives, of different images, almost like a, a poem that's written in prose. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about your approach to the essay as a form, what you think about the essay, what you think it's capable of, which essayists you admire. Yeah, sure. So my background is in poetry, and I came to the essay through poetry. I was never actually writing in lines. I was writing prose poetry from the beginning. So I was always in prose, but er very early in my career as a writer, I was publishing mostly prose poems. And, And those prose poems began to get longer and longer until what I was writing was 3,000 word prose poems, which looked a lot more like essays. But I think that what carried over into my essays was some of the logic of the movement of a poem. And I'm attracted to that logic because it's the logic of my own thought. Poems often move associatively. So we don't necessarily expect a poem stanza to stanza to to build a logical argument or to to build a cohesive narrative and often as readers will accept large leaps of association between stanzas in a poem. That is how my thought moves. I associate, I'm an associative thinker. So importing that associative nature of the poem into an essay allowed me to write essays that mirrored my own process as a thinker. And so that's part of why you see those those juxtapositions, those associative movements in my essays is because that's simply how my mind moves. One thing will remind me of another. And so I set them next to each other on the page. And there is often an implied argument behind that juxtaposition. And sometimes that implied argument is not at all subtle. You know, it's quite loud. And sometimes that argument is fairly in the margins or, or off the page. Could you talk about your your process of how you go about writing an essay and what what makes you want to start? And then how do you see an essay through from initial conception to completion? Yeah, sure. 
I almost always start an essay from a problem or a question that I have. And, and often it's a problem or a question that's has some direct relationship to my lived experience of the moment. The question will rise out of my life and, and often seems very urgent, something that needs to be addressed. And sometimes that question or problem is brought into relief or, or brought into some sort of clarity by, by a research process. And so actually that first essay in Notes from No Man's Land, the one about the telephone poles, that's an essay that was very shaped by my research process. And I started that essay with a very vague, amorphous idea of what I wanted to do. I already had many of the essays in the collection by the time I wrote that essay. And I did set out to write an essay that would open the book. And I wanted, because the book was about racial divisions in in many ways, I wanted to start with an essay that would gesture towards or think about our efforts to be connected to each other, stay connected to each other. For me, the the telephone was a, it was a emblem of that, a symbol of that, um, of those efforts to towards connection. I think looking back, I think I had a fairly naive vision of what this essay could do or would do. And I feel very fortunate that my research process interrupted that naive vision and delivered something very different to me. Um, but what happened, you know, initially I thought, okay, telephone pole, what do I know about telephone poles? And the answer to that was virtually nothing. So, so that essay really, there was very little on the page. I think actually what is now the very end of the essay where I reflect on my grandfather's work as a lineman and my childhood understanding of telephone poles and my lifelong love for the aesthetics of telephone poles. That's those were the first paragraphs that I wrote, and there's only about three of them. And after that, I'd exhausted what I had to say about telephone poles. And that's when I went to the New York Times archive that has digitized PDFs of every everything that's been in the New York Times since 1851. And it, I think this was my first time using that archive. I'd just been introduced to it by a research librarian at University of Iowa. And I used it in a way that I, I now know very few researchers would use it in that I, I plugged it in as my search term telephone poll, and I put in a very wide date range, a date range that was guaranteed to give me more than most people would want to work with. So I put in the date range from shortly after the invention of the telephone to right before the transatlantic, the first transatlantic call. So I put in about the first 30 years of the telephone. So this is roughly like 1890 to somewhere around 1920. And what I got back was, of course, hundreds, probably nearly a thousand articles. But because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I just sat down and started reading through them. So that was my research to read through and the initial articles are reflected in the opening of that essay. There, there were articles that chronicled uh, what the New York Times was calling the war on telephone poles. And this was the 
the pushback that telephone companies were getting to this infrastructure they were putting up that people found ugly and thought it was, you know, a version of urban blight. And I think I had probably read, you know, 20, maybe more articles that discussed the war on telephone poles. And I was certain at that point that that would be the entire essay, that I was going to write an essay about this war on telephone poles, and that it would be an essay about the conflict between our desire to connect and our desire for something else, uh, purity of landscape or individuality and the struggle between these two sensibilities. But then I think I'd arrived at around the turn of the century in my reading, and I read an article about a black man being lynched from a telephone pole. And then the next article was also about a black man being lynched from a telephone pole. And so was the next one, and so on, for hundreds and hundreds of articles. And I had known about this history. I knew about Jim Crow. I knew that lynchings happened during this period. But being plunged into the details of these newspaper articles to read again and again about lynchings that involve a brutalization of the body and torture, people's legs being burned off before they were hanged, people's genitals being cut out, people's tongues being cut out, Mm -hmm. um, people's eyes being cut out, the the multiple stabbings before they were hanged. It, It brought me into a terrible closeness with that history uh, that mm-hmm. I felt that I had to reproduce on the page. So mm-hmm. the shape that essay took was an effort for me to reproduce my experience as a researcher for the reader. And that's why that piece opens fairly light and then moves into this litany of lynchings. I'm, I'm trying to recreate for the reader what it felt like to be doing this research. Mm, yeah, and it, really, it has the, almost the horror that arrives. You go from kind of laughing at the the silliness of people opposing telephone poles and trying to cut them down to the sheer horror at what was done to people's bodies all around the symbol. And it's just such an effective piece of writing. I'm wondering if we could speak a bit more about your role as a teacher of writing So you teach in a creative writing program, and you've been a teacher in a sense for much of your adult life. Could you talk a bit about your experience of teaching and how that's played into your understanding of writing? Mm. What are the connections that you see between the two? Yeah, my teaching and my writing are so symbiotic in that Mm. I think that my teaching is the place where I do my ongoing learning about writing and that learning sometimes takes the form of me reading authors that I wouldn't otherwise read because I'm bringing them to my students. So, you know, in the last five to seven years, I've read a great number of writers solely because I want to make sure that I bring diverse offerings to my students. And and so I've read a lot of Black writers because I know that I need to teach Black Mm. writers. And so that's part of what brings me to some of the literature that's been most important to me, actually. And it's not just that. I think it's talking through what's going on in these works that I admire, 
is really useful to me. It's And it's meant to be useful for the students too, right? We, we talk about how the work is made, how it's doing what it does. But in, in articulating that, I feel like I get a roadmap for my own work um, when I can better understand, for instance, how Zadie Smith is handling an essay. It gives me ideas about how I might handle the essay that I'm working on at the moment or a future essay. And the same is true for student work, actually. When I have to sit down with a student and look at the problems in a student's essay and talk those problems through with a student, it's often I have epiphanies about problems in my own work. It's really very directly useful to me as a writer to talk with another writer about the problems in in their work. Yeah, uh, it's much easier to help someone else solve a problem than to solve your own problem. You know, even when it's the same. Problem. I come up against this in a day on a daily basis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in that way, it's teaching is tremendously useful to me, but it's also it really it widens my world. It broadens my world. Back when the Black Lives Matter movement first started, I made a decision in my teaching because the death of black men was so often in the news in that moment. I wanted my students to be reading work by living black men. And so I made a decision that year to to only teach writing by contemporary black men, writing that had been published within the last year or two. And that was a wonderful education for me. I had to locate and read a whole bunch of authors who I hadn't read before. And, and it was, yeah, I think it was just a tremendous education. And so I'm consistently being educated by my, my work with students. Yeah. It's funny when you mentioned your students as other writers, which they are, you're not taking the approach that you sort of decry in one of your essays about teaching in Harlem. You're not taking the approach of education as a form of social control. Mm-hmm. But you're you're viewing it almost as uh, peers helping each other to learn. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, it's a really beautiful understanding of teaching. And I'm wondering, yeah. what are some of the kinds of writing that your students are doing now that inspires you or gives you hope? Yeah. Well, one of the really interesting things, you know, speaking of what has changed in the 10 years since Notes from No Man's Land first came out, One of the really interesting things to me is that I now routinely work with students who are thinking and writing about whiteness. Hmm. That was not true. I've been teaching at Northwestern for 13 years now, and that was not true in my first five years here. I think I worked with one student in those first five years who was a white woman thinking about race and whiteness, though she didn't use the term whiteness. That's what she was thinking about. But now, just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a student who is writing about whiteness and Jewish assimilation into whiteness and struggling with some big questions about her own identity as a Jewish American and asking herself how much she has and hasn't assimilated into what is essentially white culture, though I've loathe to use that term because I don't think there actually is such a thing as white culture. It's just a white power structure, I guess, is probably a better term. Right. So 
Right. Yeah, that's one of the interesting shifts that I've seen is I, I now fairly frequently get to talk about race and whiteness with undergraduate students. I've also been teaching, I've been teaching Jamaica Kincaid's essay, A Small Place, mm. for my entire career at Northwestern. And I've noticed a real shift in the students' readiness to engage with the critique that Kincaid is making in that essay. And it's a very direct critique of privileged white tourism. And when I first started teaching this essay, it made my students very defensive. And I, whenever I taught it, I had to prepare myself for a difficult conversation that would initially be full of defensiveness from white students. And in the last couple of years, that hasn't been my experience teaching that essay. It's, I think that the students who are reaching me are already primed to meet that critique and to talk it through and to begin to reckon with it. Yeah, what I'm thinking as you're speaking, what a change since some of the reactions of the students you had at Iowa when you were teaching in the graduate writing program, who would say things like, well, the race problem has been solved, you know, that weren't, weren't open to critique. Mm -hmm. um, and it just to, I mean, to think about how the national conversation has changed. It's so interesting to me. I don't know. I thought we could, um, I thought we could end on a note that, that you include in, in, in some of the end notes to your essays. You have this essay called All Apologies, where you reflect on the nature of what an apology is. What does it mean to say you're sorry? Uh, how does that shift relationships? And in this era of me too, call out culture, these sorts of things that we're, we're living with on a daily basis, the demands for apologies. I'm wondering if you could speak a, a bit about this conclusion that you reach, which is, first of all, we need to forgive ourselves. I'm wondering if you could speak about how you came to think about apologies. Who do you think we owe apologies to now? And how might that set us free? Yeah, yeah. That essay came out of a very private memory of my younger sister telling me when we were quite young, she was probably only three or four, which would make me six or seven at the time. And I hit her and then apologized immediately. I, and I was truly immediately sorry for what I'd done. And she said, um, this is my sister who would go on to become a philosopher. But at three or four, she, her, the form her philosophizing took was she said, sorry doesn't cut it. And my response was, what do you mean? Sorry is how you erase a wrongdoing. And she said, no, no, you can't. You don't, you don't get to take back what you did with a word. It's, you have to live with your action. And this stayed on my mind for the, you know, the rest of my life, really. I was in my late 20s by the time I wrote about it. And it had the, the, the philosophical question that she had posed had remained troubling to me, this, this possibility that there are things that cannot be apologized for and that actions are irrevocable and that there are wrongs so grievous that they can't, be, they can't ever be addressed. And so that, of course, brought me to some of these questions about racial wrongs and how, how we should and how we can reckon with and potentially apologize for or atone for 
these racial wrongs in the contemporary moment. And I actually don't really feel very settled on that question at all. I think that essay moves back and forth between different ways of thinking about apology. And I don't feel that I came out of it with a very good sense of conclusion. But I think what I did discover or decide in the process of writing it is that even though the act of apology is symbolic, it carries significance and it carries meaning for both the person who apologizes and the person who receives the apology. Even if the apology is not accepted, there's some significance there. And so I think I I walked away from that essay feeling that it is, it's better to to make an attempt at apology, even if you know it can't and won't be accepted, that the the wrong was too grievous to make it even appropriate for someone else to accept the apology. You know, for instance, no one can accept an apology for slavery. That's, it's an impossible apology. And there's no, there's no one who could possibly be authorized to accept it. But that doesn't mean that the apology shouldn't be made or spoken or that some move towards atonement should be made. Um, and in terms of forgiving oneself, I'm kind of circling back around to your original question. I see this all the time. I see it in myself and I see it in other people, that it's possible to become crippled by self-recrimination, to reach a point where you're unable to think clearly and unable to to do anything. Actually, it's a kind of paralysis, right, that comes from shame and self-blame and a, a sense of wrongdoing. And this is something that's taken up in this concept of white fragility, that you, white people sometimes when, when faced with hard realizations and hard hard conversations about race will, will simply crumple. Right. And um, and so I do think that there is it is important to engage in some self forgiveness and some understanding that we're all victims of a historical situation that's much bigger than our individual actions. And that is part of what helps me continue to stay with the conversation is this sense that. I didn't make this machine. I'm caught up in it the same way everyone else is caught up in it. It's uh, it's serving me in certain ways, but it's also undoing me in other ways. We so frequently talk about the advantages enjoyed, but we don't talk about the, let's call it the deleterious spiritual effects that this system has, even on those who are oppressing. Yeah. So there's a kind of return to wholeness that we're all seeking for, and that can only begin with this kind of gentle attitude towards ourselves. I think that's true. I think that's true. If you can't, I think it's very hard to look at your own wrongdoing without a readiness to forgive yourself. Hmm. I think if you're not ready to forgive yourself, you can't look. And so it's it's part of the process. Interesting. Well, Yula, thank you so much for speaking with us today on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thank you so much. This was such a generous interview, and I so enjoyed talking with you.